Good morning and welcome to The Orchard. We are so glad you are here today as we are in our Genesis series, week two. You know, I was raised in the mountains between Redstone and Marble, back where it was uh, uncivilized and it was the best childhood, full of outdoor play, no cell phones. We fished in the rivers, we built forts, we did so many things. Life was good and my mother was uh, always sure to pack a nutritious and healthy lunch for me to eat as she sent me to school every day. Now, nutritious by, by those standards. I mean, now we know that gluten is of the devil and, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, we ate white bread back then and all those, you know, those things. And so, but it, it was there. It was there at the school lunch table, right, right over here in the Car- Carbondale Elementary, in the mid-1980s, where I first saw something called a squeeze-it drink. I know. Uh, Squeeze It is a beverage made by General Mills that comes with an incredible marketing campaign. It's basically just Kool-Aid in a cheap plastic squeezable bottle. But when I saw the other kids drinking these things, and then I saw the commercial, we had one channel up where I lived. And so when I'm watching the Smurfs or whatever the cartoons of the day were, and they would play this commercial about the Squeeze It, and I mean, that's all I wanted. And so for you today, I want you to watch this commercial and tell me you don't want to squeeze it. Let's play that. Control yourselves. <laughs> Control yourselves. I, I begged my parents to get me a squeeze it. We didn't have a, a lot of money, and those squeeze it's were outside of our budget. I, I knew a squeeze it must taste like the nectar of gods by a few different clues. That the, there was the commercial, of course, but then there was also the way the kids at lunch would drink them. Oh, and then the fact that my entire lunch, I couldn't trade it for just one squeeze it. I didn't, there's nothing I had that was tradable for even one. That, that's the economy of, of lunchrooms. You guys know how that goes. This went on for quite a while. My desire for chuckle and cherry, flavor only intensified with every commercial. School was out, now it was summer. I had to sit there like a pauper through those commercials, watching them all summer long. And then finally, one day, one glorious day, my mother, Rebecca Self, came home from the big city of Carbondale, and she had in her bag, squeeze it. Yeah, there were six of them in a pack. There were two for each of us. There were three kids. I remember clearly how excited I was at that moment, and, and I also remember how quickly my excitement was dashed when she told us that those squeeze-its were re, re, um, reserved for our family camping trip in two weeks. <laughs> two weeks between me and the nectar of the marketing gods. I mean, two weeks is an eternity. I'll never forget this. I would, be, I would think about them. I'm a young kid. They were in the floor of our, our, our food pantry cabinet. And in fact, one day, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to drink one. I just wanted to go look at them closer. There's nothing, wrong with, there's nothing wrong with taking a closer look. So everybody was busy, went in the closet. Oh, they, they, they looked good. I, I, I just thought, I mean, I'll just pick one up. 
I, I just wanted to get a good look at it. It looked pleasing to the eye. It looked delicious. I gave it a little squeeze. Oh, this was everything that I knew I wanted. Before I knew it, I, I had grabbed the other one. I had two to my name. And I was sprinting out the back door up the hill that ends up being McClure Pass. As fast as I could, two squeezes in hand. I, I ran as far as I could so that no one would see me. I hid behind a tree and there I sat, breathing hard, heart pounding, squeezes in my hand. I twisted the first cap off. I wasn't even thinking. I inhaled the artificial colored and artificial flavored liquid. I immediately twisted off the other one. I drank it so fast, a fraternity brother would have applauded me. I drank them so fast, I didn't even, I don't even know what it tasted like. I have no clue to this day. I pounded both those squeezes and looked down at the fallen soldiers of those plastic bottles, and it was at that moment a great and mighty fear came over me. I hadn't thought this through that well. I didn't know how to get juice back in the squeezes and then somehow get the top back on and get it back in the house. Shame and fear came over me. There was no getting out of this one. There was no going and making it right. I, I, I got in trouble. And then two weeks later, to cap it off, I had to go on a camping trip with my little brother and little sister who sipped their squeezes slowly, savoring the flavor that I, don't know, I didn't even know what it tasted like. I hate to say it in today's, you know, especially with climate change and all those things, but to this very day, there are two plastic squeeze bottles buried somewhere on McClure Pass Hill. <laughs> Which leads me to today's topic. Temptation. Sin. The world's first marketing agent and what the Bible here in Genesis calls the fall of humanity. We've been discussing Genesis, we're on week two, and we discussed how last week how God created the earth orderly, and he created, it for, for, he created you on purpose, for a purpose. He created you for his presence. He created order out of chaos. He laid the foundations of the earth, and then he put his image bearers, humans who, who bear the image of God there to tend the garden. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He made everything good. He gave them one boundary, one boundary we read about it says, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden. Everything you want is yours except one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. Now the question has always been, why did you put the tree there, God? Like if you just put the tree somewhere else or maybe just don't put it there, we, the world would be a lot different right now. Right? I mean, just don't put the tree there. That's the question. The answer is actually quite beautiful and quite simple. You see, God created humanity to have a loving relationship with him. Like I said, you were created for God's presence. You are created to have a relationship and fellowship with him. You were created to love God. That was the original intent. There's just one very big necessity when it comes to love. Love by its nature must be a choice. Love isn't something you can force. Love requires a choice, and if it doesn't have a choice, it ceases to be love. You can program a robot to act like it loves you, 
But that's a program. It's not actual love. Love requires a choice. And here's a point. You get to choose who you love. In fact, if you're single and you're listening to today, I have a secret of life to you. You ready for this? Don't fall in love. Because you might accidentally fall in love with somebody who isn't wise for you to fall in love with. The secret of life in dating is this. You get to choose who you give your love to. So choose wisely. Love, by its nature, is a choice. So if God put his beloved creations on earth and had given them no choice but to choose him, then that wouldn't actually be a loving relationship. We'd be automatons or, or we'd be puppets or something else. God created love, he created you, and he did so that you could have, so that you can have a choice to love him or not. That's the risk of love. God dared and risked greatly because he believes, he got, it says God is love, and he wanted us to love him in return. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is present so that humanity can choose to love God and remain in the boundaries of love or they could choose themselves and their selfishness to, to, to try to be their own God and deal with the fallout. So, so Adam and Eve are, are in the garden, or they're in, they're in this paradise, whatever, and they're choosing to, to, to stay in the boundaries. They're choosing to love God. It's much like how you would love your beloved, your spouse. You choose, out of love, to stay within the boundary of the marriage covenant or your covenant together. Because to go outside of that would cause so much harm to your beloved and the relationship. So out of love, we stay in the boundary of love. Now, we don't know how long Adam and Eve tended the earth and remained within these boundaries. We don't know how much time is between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It could be a day. It could be a millennia. Because remember, they're eating from the tree of life and death had not entered the world. However long it was, at some point, Someone else enters the story, enters the equation. It's one who is evil, one who is crafty, one who wants nothing more than to bring pain to God by bringing pain to his children and bring chaos to where God had created order. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. We put the word wild, wild in there, but the original language reads like this. More crafty than, it was more crafty than any animal God had made. This has led Hebrew, Hebrew sages to believe that what actually approaches Eve isn't one of God's creations, but something altogether different, perhaps. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree? You see, the enemy has a scheme here. He's a manipulator. Did God say you can't eat from any tree? He said you can eat from every tree except one. You see, he and, her and, and Eve both know the answer, but, but he's after something here. He wants to cast shade on the generosity and the goodness of God. This is the world's first marketing agent, but he's not selling squeeze-its. He's selling something much far darker. The woman says in reply, you, we may actually eat from from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree, which is the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, now Eve adds on this rule that she had put on there. I'm not even going to touch it because God didn't say that. He said don't eat it. But she says, I'm not even going to touch it. The enemy takes her statement and continues. Oh, he said you'll die? You, certain, you will certainly not die. You know, Jesus said later on, 
from his own lips, the lips of the Son of God, he said this about our enemy. He has always, always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he is consistent with his character. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He is, he is, he is trying to plant something in Eve's mind. And you've got to catch this. He's not saying that the fruit is good. He's not trying to convince her that this fruit is so good you should disobey God. It's something far different. The lie he is to have Eve begin to doubt that God is good. That's what he's doing here. He wants Eve to begin to wonder, is God holding out on me? Because if God has something he's holding out on me, there's something that, that he doesn't want me to have it, well, is he all good? And then the enemy's, the enemy's here and he goes, because I can help you get what God is withholding from you. You see, the first lie isn't that the fruit was good. The first lie was that perhaps God isn't as good and perhaps God is holding out on you. Listen to his next words and you can see what he's saying about God's goodness. For God knows that when you eat from this, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. This fruit will make you like God. Oh, and, and he doesn't want that. He's holding out on you. Now, prior to this, because actually Genesis is Act 3 of the Bible. There are acts before this that have happened. And prior to this, Satan has already um, been, been through a lot of, he's been through a lot. Because before this, he was Lucifer, the highest angel. We learn that he wanted to be like God. Satan thought at one point that God was holding out on him. So he rebelled and tried to be like God. Satan is doing, he's trying to sell to her exactly what he had sold to himself. Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. Satan made the actual choice to try to become like God and he fell. Now he's trying to convince humanity they can be like God so that they fall. More than anyone, the enemy knows the cost of this choice of selfishly choosing to be our own God, but he is hell-bent on hurting God and God's creation. He's like an evil bully. He can't defeat the father, but he knows if he hurts the children, it will hurt the father's heart. So he is hell-bent on hurting the children because he cannot defeat the father. Eve was convinced at this, it says. She saw the tree was beautiful. It looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some and she ate it. Now, for this verse to happen, Eve has to go get near this tree, doesn't she? She at some point has to go walk to it. What we see here is that Eve, instead of moving away from temptation, she moves toward it. She wants to get a better look. She wants to look in the food pantry and just see how it looks. Orchard, when it comes to sin, when it comes to temptation, do you move toward it, just to check it out? No harm in that. Or do you move away from it? You see, when, when, when tempted, we need to move away from the temptation. In fact, don't even drive that route. Don't answer that message. Don't go to that place. Don't make that call. And don't go check the food pantry to see the squeeze it. Just, just don't move toward temptation. It's never gone well for us. Move away from it. Because the closer you get, Mm, the sweeter it looks. Perhaps Eve even plucked one of the fruit. And she saw it. It's not so bad. 
Not so bad. She saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, so she ate it. The next verse says, then she gave some to her husband who was what? Come on, 10. Who was what? With her. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Where was Adam? He was next to her, beside her. He was with her this whole time. Adam was with her, and what did he say to his beloved throughout this? What did he say to the enemy? Nothing. This is known in theology as the silence of Adam. The enemy began to tempt his wife to disobey God. Adam should have stepped forward and rebuked the enemy. I mean, at at the bare minimum, he might have said, hey, babe, I don't know about this. This might not be a good idea. He could have done something. He could have said anything. He did nothing. His silence speaks volumes. And men in a loving relationship and husbands, in the places where your beloved is being tempted or spiritually attacked, men can be prone to follow in this pattern of the silence of Adam. Men, in, in, your, in your loving relationships, in your home, it is your place to step up spiritually, to stand and defend, to speak up, to pray out loud, to fight with your wife, to fight with your beloved, and to fight along with her, not to fight her, to fight along with her, to fight for her, for what is best for your house. You see, it's when men and husbands disengage spiritually from the partnership of the home. It leaves the home vulnerable to attack. Eve was tempted. Adam was right there, silent. Now, wives and women, the same thing. I bring this to the men because we're studying that. It's Adam. It's the silence of Adam. And men, in many of our cases, it is time for us to step forward and lead and speak up and pray up. You see, Adam listened to the temptation. He heard the temptation. He, he walked to the tree. He watched her perhaps pick it. He, he watched her take a bite of it, and then she handed it to him, and he, he ate it, and he didn't say a word. He was a guilty participant in the fall of humanity. Adam is not some innocent bystander whose wife ruined it all for him, as some have preached. No, 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 no. Oh, no, no. He's right there, just like silently like, oh, Okay. So what happens when they eat it? Do they die? Do they, do they keel over dead? But no, but previous to this, there had been no death. They'd been eating from the tree of life, and from this point forward, they would not be able to. And there was now death and shame where there had been purity and holiness and innocence. It says at that moment, their eyes were opened and they felt sudden shame with their nakedness. So they sewed leaves together, fig leaves, and covered themselves. What do we see is the immediate effect of selfish sin. Shame. The pattern was set back then and it is still true for us today. When we choose our own way, our selfish way, there is shame waiting for us on the other side of that. Then it says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard God walking about in the garden. God had come down to be with them as he did. So they hid from God in the trees He created them for relationship. He comes down to fellowship with them. And in their sin and shame, they're hiding. And God says, where are you? Now God knows where they are. He's not not looking for them. He's calling them out. Come forth. Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Two words that Adam should not know. If you have kids, sometimes they come home with words they should not know. 
This is one of those moments. Adam uses words here and themes that had been unknown on the earth until he ate the fruit. They didn't know they were naked before. And he says, I am afraid. There had never been fear before. But from this moment forward, fear is painted across the pages of the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, and in your life. Let's be honest. How much has anxiety and fear plagued us? Fear was the result of selfish sin. God said, who told you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Again, he knows. He knows. He's asking the question to draw forth their response. Adam replies like this. It was the woman. I mean, literally. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. I can just see them all sitting there. They're all, you know, the, fig, the first art project in, in, on the earth. They sewed these fig leaves. They're standing there all ashamed. And he just goes, it was her. She's like, are you kidding me? You're right there. Adam feels shame. Adam feels fear. And his first response when confronted was to blame. Men, this didn't go well then. It's not going to go well now. Okay, when you do something, own up to it. Adam replies, and I want you to, I want to leave this up here. I want you to, I want you to, I want you to, to look at this. <clears throat> Adam replies, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Now stop and look a little deeper because who is Adam actually blaming here? It was that woman you gave me. God, you put her here. I mean, up until then, I was having a good old time in this bachelor pad. I was naming animals. Walk around naked. But oh, no. You put a woman here, and now look at us wearing figs. Fig leaves, you know. It was the woman you gave me. You gave her to me and said it was good. And then she gave me the fruit and said it was good. God, it, it's, it's her fault mainly, but it's, all, it's, it's mainly your fault, actually. You put her here. Either way, it's not my fault. That's what he's getting at. It's not me. So Adam, in his shame, immediately blames. Let's see what Eve does. So then God, God turns to her. What have you done? The serpent deceived me. Immediately, it's just this, it's like a Scooby-Doo where everybody's just pointing at somebody different. Who actually is it, you know? Adam points to her, and she immediately points to the serpent. I just wanted to realize, no one's guilty here. No one except for maybe God and this, this talking snake thing, huh? But man, humanity, we are clean. Man, we're so good at this. What's amazing is, I mean, you and I, we're accomplished at sin, aren't we? I mean, we're, we're really good at justifying. We're really good at sin. But this is like the first, they're rookies, and look at how good they are at this. This pattern of blame and justification is something that we have never outgrown. Here's what happened. Adam and Eve were placed in a good place with every good thing given to them. Every good thing that they would need to be fulfilled was at their disposal, but they wanted more. And in their dissatisfaction and discontent, what did they do? They grasped outside the boundary God had set for them to fulfill an internal need. They grasped outside a boundary God had given them to fulfill an internal need. God had promised to fulfill them. He had given them everything in the natural and had promised to fulfill them in the supernatural, but they grasped beyond the boundary and obedience to fulfill their humanity, and then they justified it with blame. This is, this is every affair. Indulging the dissatisfaction and grasping outside the boundaries and the marriage boundaries 
The husband says, well, if only she had been more available like I needed, like I deserve. I worked so hard. I wouldn't have had to go to that other woman. You see, I was not fulfilled in the places that God designed my wife or himself to satisfy, so I reach outside the boundaries to fulfill an internal need. But I'm justified because it's more her fault than mine. And it's God's fault because he put these desires in me. And more than anything, I wasn't happy in that marriage and God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. If that sentence, everybody pause. If that sentence ever crosses your mind or your lips, whatever decisions on the other side of that, do not do it until you have talked to somebody who's a trusted friend a counselor, a pastor. Whatever it is you say, God would not want me to be unhappy. Do not do the next thing until you've talked to somebody. The wife says, if he had been more emotionally available, I wouldn't have needed to go to the other person. It's more my husband's fault than mine. He's the one that was closed down. I wasn't happy and God God doesn't want me on earth to be miserable. So I'm going to grab from the outside the boundaries God has given me to fulfill something inside. Now, this isn't just affairs. This isn't just cheating. This is for any time that we as humans want joy or peace or fulfillment and we grasp outside the boundaries, outside of the things God said he would fulfill, outside the boundaries. God says, I'll give you peace, but I don't, his peace isn't instantaneous enough, so I grab outside his boundaries to get peace by numbing or escaping or whatever. So where is it when you need peace? Where do you grasp When you need joy, where do you grasp? This has been the pattern of humanity since Genesis 3. It starts with a little doubt of God's goodness, that that God's not giving me what I need and want most. There's something out there I desire. I actually maybe even deserve it. And then I move toward the temptation. Then I step into sin. Then the result is shame. Then I deflect it with blame and I justify. And in the end, we're stuck between this cruel mistress of shame and a taskmaster of of blame. We're stuck between these two. And ultimately, this is the result of the sin of Adam and Eve. They had lived in plenty, but they wanted more. Now, you and I, we still live in plenty. And God says, I will fulfill you. And we have many things at our disposal. But but so often, we we look at life through a scarcity lens. And I have to reach outside the boundaries to fulfill these things within me. In fact, life, maybe God, maybe my spouse, maybe my boss, they're all holding out on me somehow. They're all withholding something from me that I deserve or desire most. So I'm going to start reaching outside to fulfill that. The sin entered entered the world, and there was a lot of fallout, a lot of consequences. But the greatest consequence of the sin when it first entered the world is this. Humanity and divinity have been together, and there was a rift put between God and people. God created us to enjoy a deeply personal relationship with him. He would come down and spend time face-to-face with him in the garden, but that was no longer possible. We had chosen to be our own gods, believing we could be equal. And when we have the holiness of divinity and the selfishness of sin, they cannot coexist. And so there was a separation and there was a rift between humanity and divinity, a rift between God and between us Our relationship with God was separated by our sin. Our relationship, our fellowship with God separated by our selfishness. Our dependence on God separated by our discontent. 
There was a rift between us and creation and him and creation. And everything would be different from that day. And it's different for us now. We cannot fellowship with God face to face as was intended. We will someday. But that is not now. This is the fallout. And we find in the next verses in Genesis 3, he declares the consequences of these sins. And he speaks first to the enemy. And he curses him. And he finishes the judgment on the enemy with this. He says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, God's not talking about women hating snakes here. Like, no wonder we don't like snakes. Genesis 3 says, the woman will not like you. No, no, it's much larger than that. There will be a spiritual hostility between the enemy and the, and the children of Eve, her offspring, which is everyone. Humanity and the enemy will be at war and there will be casualties. Then God finishes the curse of the enemy by prophesying about a specific offspring that Eve would have, a male that would step into this war at some point. This is Genesis 3, way before Jesus. She goes, but one will come and he will strike your head. He will crush your head and you will bruise, you will strike his heel. This, this right here has a name. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-evangelium, that's what this is called, this moment right here. Proto means first, as in prototype. Evangelium means gospel. Gospel means good news. In the Bible terms, it means good news of Jesus. This is the proto-evangelium. This is the first gospel. This is the first good news. This is the first good news of Jesus. And, and Jesus hasn't even come on earth yet. But, but back here on page two, we have the gospel of Jesus being proclaimed. I hope you're beginning to see as we've studied John and now Genesis that, that Jesus is painted all over the Bible and that God's plan wasn't like just starting with Jesus. That God's plan is vast and huge. We have the first good news of Jesus with the gospel proclaimed. And the reason that is is because there is a rift between humanity and divinity. There's a gulf of sin that separates us. But, but he says one is coming. There is someone who is coming who will destroy sin and death and evil, who will strike down shame, and who will restore and repair this broken relationship. There is one coming who will restore and redeem the broken relationship between God and his creation, his people. Adam and Eve's sin separate us from God. My sin separates me from God. Your sin separates you from God. But God was not content in that. He has a purpose for us, and so he sent Jesus. He designed, he designed you to have a relationship with him. His ultimate design was, for you was that you have a relationship. So to make that right, he sent Jesus fully God, fully human. He walked the land. He said things no one had said. He did things no one had done. And what was his message over and over and over? Jesus said this to people he met. He goes, come, follow me. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. And Jesus still says that. Because in following Jesus, there is redeemed and there's restoration and renewal in that relationship with God. As you can have, a, you can have the relationship that God desires with you. It is through Jesus. It's through Jesus and his death and his resurrection that he provides a path to the Father that you were designed for. It is through Jesus that you have access to your truest identity, the original imprint of God. It's through Jesus that you have access to your greatest destiny that he called you through. Because God has a plan for this. Through Jesus, he gives you the Holy Spirit who lives within you that gives you wisdom, that allows you to love people in a greater way that you've never been able to love them before. 
and more courage and more boldness. And today, I hope you're beginning to see, as we're, as we're looking at these two books, John and now Genesis, that God's plan isn't something just new. But far back in Genesis, there was a time where God said, but someone's coming. I will send someone who will make this right. And that's Jesus. And I want to give you an opportunity today because for some of us in here, we, we have not yet prayed. We have not yet accepted Jesus into our lives. The Bible says this is the first step of salvation. That with our lips and our hearts, we confess Jesus lived, died, and rose again as Savior. And so today, if there's any with us in the building or tracking with us online, I want to give you an opportunity to, to say a prayer that you say, Jesus, I, I believe in you as this Savior, as the saving one. I believe you is the good news. I want to invite you into my heart. I want to give my life to you so that I can step into my truest identity. I can step into the greatest destiny. And here's the promise of Jesus. Forgiveness in your past where that shame is. Forgiveness in your past, peace in your present, and hope in your future. And so I'm going to pray. And if you'd like to pray this with me for the first time, Pray out loud with engaging your heart. And if you want to be, if you're in here and you have, you have decided this long ago or recently and you want to pray to, to re-engage this, to reaffirm your faith, you pray with me too. Pray this. Say, Father God, I need you. I see your plan. I know you sent Jesus who lived and died and rose again. Jesus, I give you my life. And then take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, fill me. Amen. As you take communion today, which is the symbol of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, it's just a reminder that the cost, the cost for writing that relationship wasn't cheap. But he would go through great lengths because he loves you. He wants to restore that relationship to you. Let's pray. Let's worship.